Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome to Innovation Matters. Today's guest is Dr. Charles Edquist. He holds the Ruben Rousing Chair in Innovation at Circle, the Center for Innovation, Research and Competence in the Learning Economy at the University of Lund, Sweden, which is one of the largest research centers on innovation policy in Europe. His publications include work on innovation processes, innovation system and innovation policy and entrepreneurship. Thank you very much. So let's start with some of the basics. What's important to understand is how can we define innovation? What do we have in mind when we say innovation? Uh, because definitions, at least implicitly, vary quite a bit between stakeholders. And how does innovation work? And uh, how has this created, as you say in your book, so much prosperity? Innovations are not, uh, definitions are not right or wrong, as I see it but uh, they are good or bad for certain purposes. I have developed over time my own definition of innovation, which is actually similar to the uh, definition in the Oslo Manual, which is a, a, a large work that the OCD and the European Union has been doing with uh, definitions in the area of innovations and, and research and, and adjoining areas. My definition is uh, new creations of economic and social significance, primarily carried out by firms, but not in isolation. And for me, innovations include new products and new services, not new uh, processes, sorry. And uh, I think it's important to be clear about which definition you are using and uh, in order to make oneself understood and make it possible for others to, to really absorb what you're saying. I could uh, go on here and also talk a little bit about innovation systems and uh, defining that. I have chosen to talk about innovation systems as the same as the determinants of innovation processes. And uh, I might later on get a chance to be more specific and talk about which these determinants are or can be thought to be. And then, uh, as Anders, uh, you mentioned uh, the, the notion of holistic innovation policy. And my definition of that is that it is the same as all actions by public organizations, by public organizations that influence innovation processes. That is the development and the diffusion of innovations. And um, I think uh, I stop here for, for the moment. Thank you, Charles. If I may just follow up quickly on that question, there are two points that you make in, uh, in your book that's the basis for this uh, podcast that I wanted you to just explain very, very briefly. One is that you point to the enormous role that innovation has played in prosperity, especially over the past, past centuries. And the other is the impossibility of predicting innovation and how long it actually takes for innovation to filter through. And I think these points are important for explaining why we need to move towards a more holistic understanding. So if you don't mind, elucidate a bit on those points. 
there is uh, research about uh, the the sources of growth. It actually started in the 1950s with the so-called so growth accounting, and uh, then it has continued as a stream in uh, economics and other kinds of uh, research. And uh, the what we have learned from um, all these people that have really gone into detail here is that innovations are the most important source of productivity growth. And I, I talk about productivity growth because that's uh, a specific kind of growth that can be measured. And um, a, a common conclusion of the, uh, the research in this area is that between 75 and 90% of all productivity growth has uh, its source in innovation. And we also know at the same time that this growth, this productivity growth, it creates increased salaries, higher profits, and it is possible to get more taxes. So the conclusion is that productivity is the most important source of social and economic welfare. I think a long time ago, Paul Krugman said uh, as an example that um, uh, the, the Nobel Prize uh, winner, Paul Krugman from, from the US, he said that um, productivity isn't everything, but it is almost everything. And then he implied that it's so important in, in the long run. If we look in, in, in closer times, we know that innovation is also a very important source of increased sustainability and decreased CO2 emissions. And uh, as we know, both are important objectives in the Agenda 2030. So I can also mention that innovation has also destroyed the uh, or contributed to, to destroying the environment in many cases. But now uh, when there is such importance uh, given to uh, sustainability and uh, climate change, then uh, again, innovation is a very important source of uh, such uh, improvements. And this can be linked to the other questions you asked about impossibility to predict innovations. And another way of saying this is, is that to say that um, innovation processes are evolutionary processes. They are going on, but we don't know in each time, in each moment, exactly where they are going. And it cannot be predictive. Let me take one example, and that is uh, how we transfer data or internet content in, in, in recent decades. And if you take 10, 10 years ago uh, as a moment in time, we could not know if uh, if the important thing to transfer information and data would be through the old copper cables uh, running in the old telephone systems, or if it would be the, the fiber technology buried in, in so many countries, or if it would be transformation of the mobile networks. And uh, of course, this is this is being influenced by by policymakers and. Uh, that is uh, an important thing to know that uh, we still cannot know whether the, the, the fiber or or the, the transmission in, into the air is going to be the most important carrier of, of the internet in the future. Thank you very much, Charles. You made sub several important points, especially the last ones that we cannot predict. Innovation, in fact, we've been marvelously bad at predicting innovation. And uh, it sometimes takes very long for innovation. Things like electricity took over a half a century to, to, to conquer the world. As uh, some famous economists said some time ago, we see 
information technology everywhere except in the productivity statistics. It takes time to use technologies and to build ideas around technologies well. And there are a lot of complementarities that lie well outside the remit of technology policy and innovation policy. And that takes us to our next question, which is about understanding what the systems approach to innovation is and how it's different from the linear approach. So it's relatively clear that innovation involves several, uh, is unpredictable that it involves several uh, complementarities or complementary capacities that, that we cannot predict it and it involves a lot of chance as well. So in this context, how does the systems approach to innovation enable us to understand innovation better, especially as a basis for good policymaking to support innovation? The linear model, as you mentioned, emerged in, in the 1940s and 50s and uh, was uh, put forward by Vannevar Bush. And uh, it's, it says that uh, innovation is, innovations are generated by uh, a process consisting of well-defined consecutive stages. And that could be basic research, applied research, development work that result in new products and new processes, which is innovation, and growth and employment and other uh, societal effects. This view, linear view was a supply push and very partial. And um, it was partial or linear in the sense that it actually started only from, from one thing, and that's the research. And that from the research followed everything else. And um, it has had a strong position in innovation research for until about 1990, when um, some of us started to develop the so-called systems of innovation approach. And uh, people that were ahead of everyone else in, in that respect was uh, Bengt Lundvall and Richard Nelson and uh, Chris Freeman. And then uh, it is uh, has been developed over the last few decades. The main part of this development is that it was realized that these processes of innovation, they have many determinants, not only one. It's a very one-sided view. And among the maybe 10,000 innovation research professors that exist in the world, I could not find many that believe in the, the linear approach. So the, the systems approach developed in the last two decades of, of the former millennium, and it is still developing. And um, I also published a book in 1997 about uh, systems of innovation approach. And uh, from there, I also developed a list of what I see as the most important determinants of innovation process, because the definition of, in, of innovation system is that it is all the determinants that influence innovation processes. And I will run through the list here. It is used as a structuring device in the book on holistic innovation policy. There is basically one chapter on each of the 10 determinants. And among the determinants we have, for example, of course, we have research and development and we have education and train, training. But we also have demand side factors like formation of new product markets and articulation of, of quality requirements of the products. And then as number five, we have uh, the creation and change of organizations. For example, the creations of, of, of new firms or new rules about uh, patents. And interactive learning is a very important determinant, it was shown by, by empirical research during this period. 
and also the creation and change of institutions that is very important. Incubation and financing closely related, they are also important uh, parts of the determinants of innovation processes. And um, this has uh, developed, and if I, I don't have the, the number here, but uh, the number of hits in, in Google on, on the term system of innovation or innovation system is hundreds of millions. So it is, and it has been used by, by many heads of state uh, and others uh, that are talking about uh, innovation. So it has been a major shift. And this, the, the innovation systems of search is not a supplement or complement to the linear approach. It actually replaces the linear approach. But the linear approach is almost non-existent now in, in research, in innovation research, but it still dominates innovation policy. And I hope we can come back to that issue uh, later on, maybe. Thank you, Charles. We, we will get back to, to that topic. And, and indeed, given what we all know about innovation and how innovation comes about, given what needs to happen, for instance, to get autonomous vehicles running in our cities in terms of regulation, education, social policy to compensate for trade-offs, it's about much more than the actual innovation involved in creating those vehicles. So there's almost a question about why is the linear approach something that anyone has ever thought at any point, given the massive evidence even before that to the contrary. And I think the response is that we also need something that policymakers can actually put into practice that fits within the way we do public policy, we do central planning with the way we have indicators and with the, with the incentives that people have. And also, of course, a lot of this came from a time when a lot of innovation came out from uh, DARPA and other instruments funding the defense industry in the United States, which of course almost by, by necessity was, was linear and very secretive in structure. Yeah. And of course, Matsukato talks quite a bit about this. And Eisenhower got frustrated at the dynamics involved. So this gives us then the question of, okay, we understand that systems are important. No reasonable would disagree. There are still ways of defining it in detail, but everyone understands this and it's relatively intuitive, but how do we put this into practice? And I think you want to take a step in this direction through something that you call holistic innovation policy, which tries to address some of the gaps in the systems of innovation literature and especially the relevance for policymakers and the role of governance and uh, in, in creating innovation systems and in making them more, more vibrant. Could you talk a bit about what underpins the idea of holistic innovation policy and what it can bring to the table in this context, also for ECE countries with uh, economies in, in transition? I, I previously defined what I mean with, with uh, holistic innovation policy. And um, one of the great achievements by developing uh, the systems of innovation and more recently the holistic innovation policy based on wide interpretation of um, systems of innovation. For example, it has become natural to also deal with demand side determinants of innovation processes. And actually, this is something that has been done for decades or for 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 a hundred years, and that is when the the public actors, the central state, the regional state, or the local state, when they buy things, it's called public procurement. 
and it's a, a very, very large activity in, in all economies. For example, in, in Sweden, it's about 17% of GDP. That is almost one-fifth of the whole economy is constituted by public procurement. And uh, it is often going on in a very old-fashioned way. The, the, the public civil servants, they define the products that they want to buy, if it is a computer or, or a tram or, or whatever. And then they describe that product. And I call that product procurement. But as Anders hinted at when, when we talked about um, the un impossibility of predicting innovation processes, this means that if you define the product in detail and you want to buy it, you get exactly that product, which means that you cannot get an innovation. And there are legal, legal rules about how one firm, one supplier can protest if another firm is not following the rules and, and uh, is offering something else, for example, an innovation. So basically, product procurement makes innovation impossible in 20% of the economy. This is hilarious and uh, it is a, a very important source of non-efficiency of uh, our economies. Um, therefore, what can be done to transcend this uh, problem is to not describe the products that shall be bought, but describe the problem that you want to have solved. And uh, you should then, when you are a buyer, a procurer, you should then describe the problems that you want to solve. And we know, for example, that this is increasingly happen, happening now in, in, in the field of trying to limit uh, CO2 emissions. But I, I want to give one example here. It's an example of noise reduction. If we have roads or railways, we get noise, right? And uh, what uh, public agencies then do is that they they procure, they place an order for a noise, noise fence and they describe it. It should be two and a half meters high and, and made, made from, from wood or ton or whatever. And they will get exactly that fence. And we have all seen them, how ugly they are all over our, our, our countries. But they should not do it that way. Instead of describing a noise fence, they should say that we want 62 decibel maximum noise level in the closest apartment. Then it does not matter how that is achieved. So this is creative. This is opening for creativity and innovation. And you can get this in many ways. You can get it by uh, prescribing lower speeds or you can give subsidies to buying electric cars they have no no noising from the engines and uh, you can also demand more quiet asphalt and there is also a physical device that i don't know that much about but it's possible to bend the sound waves up in the air and not being transmitted transmitted along along the, the ground so this is one example where creativity and innovation, innovativity can be enhanced through public procurement. But this is happening and there is quite a few people that want to pursue this. But still, most of the public procurement is still done in the form of product procurement, which 
prohibits innovation. And um, actually, this was a long answer to sort of the question of how, how the the systems or, or the holistic innovation policies is is better than than the linear view. And um, there are so also in, in many others, but um, this is one way that the development of the systems of innovation approach and the holistic innovation policy approach uh, have led to more dynamism in, in the economies. Thank you, Charles. And I, I think the, the point that you made about looking at the demand side in general and, and the potential of public procurement, which is also large in, in most ECE countries, at least over 10%, depending on what you count and what is actually put through a procurement process, is a good example of basically extending the logic of the systems of innovation and what innovation policy should be about into other areas and the dynamics that could come from that. And I think this is at the core of the holistic innovation policy approach that, that you talk about. At the same time, you also say that there is still quite a bit of linear thinking out there, not because anyone is convinced by it, but, but for other reasons, for problems with actually putting this into practice, because of entrenched interests, because of turf force, because of the need to stick to a specific way of defining solutions and planning policy interventions, because of institutional legacy, which is can be particularly tangible in, in many of the countries of transitions where we work, where we still see a certain central planning approach coming through here and there in different activities. So these are still motivated policymakers. We work with them every day and they all want to make a difference and they all understand the, the, the system's nature of innovation at, at some level. So there's there's enough awareness on that side. But at the same time, even in developed countries like Sweden, you say there is still see the linear approach here and there, and you talk about several recent reasons why this linear approach still persists. Could you could you talk about those examples, please? The majority of all public procurement is still being done in, in by describing the products, and uh, this is tradition, and uh, this has been partly based on on rules and, and legal norms, and uh, also the civil servants that are dealing with it in, in, in Swedish case, it's many thousands of people administering this, and they they have a tendency to do it in what they mean is an efficient way. They they simply take the, the procurement from last year and uh, they cut and paste and edit a little bit and then they use it for, for the current year. So it's a, it's a way of limiting the amount of work and do it in the same way as, way as before. In Sweden, there is a national strategy of um, public procurement and uh, to, it deals with procurement in a wide sense. And one of the sections here deals with the relation between procurement, public procurement and innovation. And uh, they go then in that part of the strategic plan. They, they also go into the, the idea of functional procurement to describe the problems and define the functions of the future products in order to make it more dynamic. And this was actually coming out of something called the National Innovation Council in which we have exists in Sweden. And after discussions in that council, which is chaired by the prime minister, it was developed, this strategy was developed, including the innovation and functionality part was developed into this strategy. And it was decided by the government collectively. 
So this is one way of catching ideas in, that exist in society and, and channel them into policy that uh, works and will potentially work to a much larger extent in, in the future. There is a, a strong tendency to deal with uh, these uh, problems. And I will also say that we mentioned some numbers that public procurement is 10% of GDP or 70% of GDP or maybe 5% in some countries, but it is still much larger than the public expenditures on research and development, much, much larger. So for particular for countries that do not have that much public expenditures on research and development, they still buy a lot of products from, from companies in, in the economy or from, from outside. So the, the, the muscles, the potential muscles of pursuing innovation and maybe pursuing innovation in certain directions related to climate and, and the environment, they will be potentially a much stronger and more important instrument than the research and development, particularly for middle income countries who don't, do not have the resources and the infrastructure for a very large expenditure on research and development. Thank you, Charles. I think the, the example you give of the enormous potential of, of using procurement in the right way to create more demand for innovation and maybe also more value for money for especially for countries that have uh, growing fiscal constraints is an excellent illustration of what we could achieve by taking a holistic view on innovation and also on policymaking, policymaking in general. Could you explain a little bit more maybe with an example from outside public procurement and the demand side, what additional guidance the holistic innovation policy approach could give policymakers and ECE member states? Yeah. In the old view, the linear view, it's conceived so almost by definition that all innovation has to start by research and development. If you have this holistic view of innovation policy, then you, you, you might talk about 10 as I do, or 8 or 12 or whatever number of determinants. And they might, I, I listed them previously. And if you then, if you see that you have a problem in the innovation system, that you have a, some sector or some part of the, of the system that is not dynamic enough, then when you have this holistic view, you can simply make an analysis on identifying what is lacking to make this, the innovation system more dynamic. And then you can include not only research and development, but also procurement and the change of institutions, the interactive learning, the incubation and the financing. So you make an analysis and you identify what is uh, the, the problem and then you can attack exactly that problem, whether it's education or, or financing. I could mention one more example of this, of an idea that was discussed in the National Innovation Council, where I was sitting at that time. And it was a matter of criticism of how the way public financing of innovation processes were operating. And we got, we reached the conclusion, not only me, but also others reached the conclusion that well, much of the public funding for innovation was going to mature firms, to mature products, and they should not have any support at all from the public sector. It's uh, the idea of additionality. The public sector shall only intervene in, in the innovation systems if there is a problem that is not solved by the private actors.
So the, the holistic view then opens up for a wider use of policy instruments and to use several more policy instruments. And it's a matter of coordinating these through different mechanisms. And uh, the Swedish National Innovation Council was one way of coordinating different instruments of innovation policy. Thank you very much, Charles. We are coming towards the end, so I will ask uh, the final question and ask uh, Charles to make a summary, just to pick up on some of the points that uh, Charles makes. One of the essential elements is to focus on the problem, in addition to focusing on the demand side, and to see how can you use different policy areas to address the problem. This is related to another discussion that mission-oriented innovation policies, which is a topic that will, will be coming up. And of course, the SDGs, to some extent, and the targets under them can be used as guidance in this, this respect. And in addition, several of the issues that, that you mentioned, Charles, I would guess based mostly on your experience from the Innovation Council and Sweden mission, comes up in the transition countries. Uh, we have to, we have several examples of generous innovation support from fiscally constrained countries going to initiatives that are either in mature companies or in established sectors. We see quite a bit of um, what Lam Pritchett called isomorphic mimicry. We have lots of we have lots of institutions called incubators, accelerators, and technoparks. You scratch the surface a little bit, and you see the same phenomenon there. There might be supporting activities that would happen, such as net administration. So, with all of this in mind, I wanted to ask you to to summarize, based on your work on holistic innovation policy in our discussion, maybe five to seven points that you want innovation policymakers and countries that we work with to take something home. What five messages? This will be um, partly a sort of a summary of uh, what I have said, and I will add some, some additional things. First of all, uh, policymakers and politicians in, in many countries, also in the transition countries, must be aware that innovation is the most important source of economic and, and social welfare. You have to have a, a dynamic innovation system in order to produce these goods. And um, innovations can influence both the speed and direction of innovation processes, which means that if the public actor wants us to go in a direction where we support the health system or uh, where environmental issues are stressed, that can be done. It's a matter of formulating the objectives of innovation policy so that these policies influence the direction of innovation processes. And um, as I said, this view, uh, linear view, has not been supplemented by systems view and holistic innovation policy, but it has replaced it in the research world. And actually, the policymakers and politicians, they are behind. They have not absorbed what research in a unanimous manner have argued for uh, the latest for decades that um, that the, the systems view is a more correct view and it uh, leads to more and better policies and thereby more productivity growth and, and uh, other positive effects. Um, and uh, holistic innovation policy also opens up for all or many things that should be done in terms of innovation policy. Uh, one thing that I would finally like to emphasize is that, for example, procurement 
from a demand side, it has not been called innovation policy. It wasn't clear to people that it can serve the function as being innovation policy, pursuing innovation processes. And of course, another things, uh, other things on my list of, of 10 determinants, they, which means that all these things, they are not coordinated. Actually, the, the National Innovation Council in Sweden was created by the Prime Minister in order to, to coordinate various innovation policy areas. And in the longer run or further developed, this can lead to the establishment of a new policy area, just like we have seen developing new policy areas in the last few decades, energy policy, environmental policy, climate policy, and so on. And uh, innovation policy can be developed also in that direction. And um, I think uh, this doesn't have to be done by means of a national innovation councils. There are many different types of policies that uh, or coordinating mechanisms that can be used. And I think this is a very important area where we should do a lot of work in, in the next uh, five or so years, because it is very important to establish this policy area as an integrated policy area. And it can be not only, as I said, by means of a national of a national innovation council. It can also be in, in a minister innovation. It can be in a strong public agency for innovation. It can be in a minister of innovation and so on. There are different types or possible coordination mechanism of various instruments of innovation policy. And I think the payoff doing so, establishing this is um, potentially very large. Remember again that 75 to 90% of the productivity growth has its source in innovation processes over the long term. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Charles Edquist of uh, Lund University for being our guest here on Innovation Matters. We hope to speak to you again on some of the other topics you talked about, such as innovation enhancing procurement in one of our later episodes.